good to be with you this morning. I have to apologize for the, for the opening hymn. Robert and I both made one very wrong assumption. Uh, we didn't know we were going to sing a funeral dirge this morning. Uh, <laughs> we thought that was a familiar tune, and um, man, we missed it. So uh, I apologize. That is our fault. There are about five uh, hymns in the book that, that uh, concerning Jesus' second return, which is what our passage is on today. And, um, and we picked one of the five that uh, nobody's ever heard. So um, that's pretty difficult to do. But uh, you were very good and faithful and uh, tried to do it. It is somewhat appropriate because we are going to have a lot of uh, funeral and um, mourning today um, in our passage. But if you will turn with me to Revelation 20, we are looking at verses 7 through 15 today. And where we are finding ourselves is at the climax of the book. We are finding ourselves in the final visions of John as he uh, sees Jesus Christ and the vision of what was to come. The vision of Jesus Christ returning to judge the world. And if you notice on your outline here, just to orient yourself for a moment, that what we are uh, looking at is the world's final judgment from various perspectives. And that this section begins in chapter 19. It runs through the, uh, through the very beginning of chapter 21. And we have John here with a series of visions. And we've said that these visions are probably not sequentially in order, that they're complementary visions that overlap, and that they inform us with various perspectives. Some of you will probably have different season tickets at the Grizzlies games. And if you're like me when you go to a Grizzlies game... You are in what are called the nosebleeds or the $5 seats, and you have, a ver- you have a perspective on the game. I think if anyone who sat up there with me, you would know what the perspective is. Everyone looks about like an ant, uh, <laughs> and you miss certain parts of the action. And then if you're down on the court, you have a different perspective. You see a different thing. And this is what we're seeing with John, that he has various visions here. And where he sits in those visions depends on what he sees and what he reports. And so we have different details here that he gives us in each vision, but they're often of the same event. And so that is how John is giving us the book of Revelation here in these last chapters. And so you see where we are. We're at the final judgment here on your outline in chapter 20, verses 7 through 15. So let's read our text. Hear the word of God. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. And will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. 
If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, Frederick Holderheen, he said this. He said, when the danger is greatest, the saving power also increases. And over the last several chapters, we've been seeing this increasing danger that even in visions that are complementary of one another, there is a heightening here building to this climax where we have the devil being emancipated and being released and God entering into final judgment. And so this is a denouement. This is a high moment in the book of Revelation and what we're seeing today. And one of our first questions has to be this morning, why does John see fit to repetitively give us these visions of final judgment? What was he trying to communicate to God's people? Because as has been stated throughout the study of the book, John is a pastor. And he was trying to influence people's presence, present walks with Jesus Christ. He was trying to impact their daily living. And so when he tells of future events, he has a purpose in people's present lives. And so that is the main question. And I believe there are two primary answers here. You'll find this on your outline. But why does he give us future events? I believe it's answering two questions. But first, he is answering the real theological question for the church. This is what John is doing in giving us the future vision of judgment. He's answering the real theological question of the church. Now, for some people, the theological question of the church is where does evil come from? Or how does a good God tolerate such evil? Well, the interesting thing is the Bible is so uninterested in that question. <laughs> doesn't even really <laughs> propose an answer. It gives some hints. But that's not the question that the Bible's really interested in. But there's a much more profound one. And if you might be with us and you might not uh, believe in all this stuff yet and you're not sure about it, and I understand sometimes because it's difficult, but let me give you an even better question <laughs> that you might want to ask to your Christian friends. But the better question is if Jesus Christ is King and He is the Lord, the reigning One who's over all of creation, then why is it so bad for His people? That is the real perplexing question for the Bible and for every Christian in this room. And that is the very question that John had to answer. And it can be phrased in this way as well, and I say it with all respect, but what in the hell is going on? That's exactly what he's trying to answer because it looked more like hell on earth than it did heaven. And Jesus Christ was the one who was to be reigning. But it looked like Satan and his minions... Satan and all his forces, the powers of hell, were more active on earth. And so John has to answer this very profound and searching question. And so here's what he does. In this final vision, what he's trying to communicate is this, that God will crush Satan and all evil when Jesus returns to judge the world. Evil will not win out. John is giving one last final affirmation. That though evil appears to reign, and though it may even appear to win the day in your life, that Jesus Christ is returning to crush it one final time. It will not win. And that's the first question that John is answering, why he's giving this to us. And second, what John is doing is he is affirming the church in the present by envisioning the future. Now, many of you know these basic leadership principles. Uh, that many books have made plain for us. 
but that we have to begin with the end in mind. If any of you are, are good golfers, which I am not, um, I just don't even bother to begin. But it's said of a good golfer that he will begin by thinking about where he would like to be, say it's a par four, where he would like to be on his fourth shot. Where he would like to be putting from, or if you're really good, where you'd like to be on your third shot. But how close you would be like, you would like to be to the hole. And so then you start thinking back from there what you need to be doing. That you think of what club you would need to be hitting and where it needs to be placed and where it needs to go. Well, the Christian life is very much the same. John gives us a vision of the end in order to help us in the present. That he's allowing us to envision what is going to happen in order to animate our present lives, to let us know how we need to be living, to let, us, to let it motivate us and drive us and encourage us. And so know that this is an affirming word. John is deeply at his heart a pastor. Sometimes we get lost in the book of Revelation, all kinds of scientific readings and literary analysis and all this business, and our heads start spinning, and we forget just the basic simple beauty of the thing. That John wants to encourage us in our hearts. He wants to address the most profound and real questions about our struggles with God and faith and coming to to Jesus Christ. So that is where John is shooting on those two basic issues. And that is going to be our point of departure for today as we think about uh, this passage. And we're going to break this down into two sections, verses 7 through 10 and 11 through 15. And so if you'll look with me to our first section, in verses 7 through 10. And I believe the point of this section, where we talk about Satan's doom and his judgment, is simply this, is that if we are to persevere in our faith, we need a vision of the destruction of Satan. Because evil is so prevalent and it seems to rule our world, Jesus wants to give you a vision of Satan's ultimate and final destruction. And that this is one of the most sure and certain things. Now, just for a moment, entertain me. But there was a certain verb tense that should be used in all of these things. Because John is speaking simply in the present tense. But John does something really strange here. I mean, he's speaking of something in the future tense. He is speaking of events that have not yet happened. But John shifts here and uses past tense verbs. In this whole section, he's using past tense verbs. But he's talking about future realities. Now, what this was, this was a Hebrew device for when they wanted to talk about a future event that was so certain, they would talk about it in the past tense. That was just a Hebrew way of doing things. And gentlemen, this is the most certain thing about our world. It's more certain than anything in our lives, more certain than our next breath, more certain than your relationship with your wife, more certain than your relationship with your friends, more certain than your economic forecast. It is the most certain thing that you have because the Bible speaks about it as an event that's already happened. It's so certain that it's coming in the future. And so that is what John wants to press upon us today. And he wants us to know that Satan has been destroyed. Now, we're going to find this in several steps, but look in verse 7 with me. And we see that after the thousand-year reign, which Sandy has done a very good job laying out to you the different options, And the perspective that he's working from is the amillennial one, which is the one that I will share with him. But that that thousand-year reign is the rule of Jesus Christ over all heaven and earth. But where it looks very disputed, and it's not clear to all people all the time, and there are people who still reject his rule and authority. 
But it says that after that thousand-year reign comes to an end, while Satan has been thrown into a prison and he has been hindered in his working, though he was still active, that he is emancipated for a time. So Satan will be emancipated in verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. So Satan is free to go and work in the world at this certain point in future history. And so all of a sudden, the stakes have gotten very grave, and this is a very serious moment. But the one thing that is encouraging for us in this moment is that do you realize that Satan was released to do this? And that presupposes that there is one in authority, that there, there is a jailer who let him out. There is one who is still sovereign and ruling over him, that he is still a dog on a chain. And though he is given incredible power and authority to do these things, and he's permitted to do them, that he is still a dog on a chain. He is on a leash, but and God is still reigning over his world. So even in this climatic moment where all things seem to be falling apart, hell is breaking loose on the earth, that all is still okay because God is sovereign and in control. So Satan's emancipated. And then what we see in verse 8 is that Satan will deceive the multitudes. And this is how it reads, and it will go out and to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. Now, in certain readings of our text, people would desire to interpret that when he gathers people from the four corners of the earth, that they would desire to read certain nations into those. And it, uh, in the 1940s, you can imagine who those certain nations were deemed to be. It was Japan, the four corners of the earth. It was, it was China a few years ago. It used to be the evil empire of Russia. The question is, can you imagine what the Christians in those places were thinking? <laughs> they, you know, there are Christians there too. And, uh, <laughs> well, they, they probably had to be scandalized by that. They're probably thinking it's the United States. Um, but the point is not to identify or label any nation, uh, any one particular nation in this. What John is talking about here when he says the four corners of the earth, that that is just talking about all the nations. That is representative of all the nations in the world. That Satan is going out out of his prison where he's been emancipated from, and he goes out into all the nations to deceive whoever he can and to mislead them. And so that is what he is going out to do. And so I put here for you on your outline, it's rather the reference to the four corners simply signifies all the earth. Now, there is a name given to this deceived conglomerate of people from all these nations. It says Gog and Magog. What exactly is that? Jibber jab. Um, and this is simply, uh, I believe this was discussed last week, this is a term from Ezekiel 38 and 39. And these were the several countries at that time who were allied against Israel. They were the Axis powers who were coming to destroy the people of Israel. And so John picks up an Old Testament image here, calls them Gog and Magog, and they are just simply the enemies of God's kingdom. And so that's who these people who are deceived are. They are the enemies of God's kingdom. They are the deceived ones. But one further thing that I'd like you to notice about these deceived people is how many there are. Perhaps one of the most difficult things about this passage and confusing things. As we get to this culminating point in history, we find that there 
are hundreds and thousands, thousands, millions and billions, says a multitude like the sand on the seashore, who are deceived. And that number is really inexplicable. How exactly could they be deceived? But multitudes will be deceived. And so I'd simply like to ask you, how does that deception look? Or what form does it take? How does it take shape in our lives? Because I think what we're prone to do when we think of Satan's hordes and armies, the people who he has deceived, isn't it kind of fun to sensationalize who that is? To dramatize it? And to think of people wearing all black and um, who have, you know, crosses and go to seances. And, you know, we like to sensationalize the thing. We like to think of evil people. But let's look and see, if you'll turn with me to chapter 21, verse 8, we'll see exactly who the deceived are. And I think this will be helpful. It'll help us de-villainize these people and understand them. But if you look in, in verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 8, it says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The people who die the second death are those who have been led by Satan into deception. And do you see who they are? That there are multiple avenues and expressions of those who have been deceived. There's no one size fits all for this thing. And perhaps the thing that threatens us most in Western culture is that we do want to villainize it. And we want to trivialize it in that way. And we don't recognize that there's so many things in our culture that could be perfectly satanic and look just so nice and plain and okay. Because one form of it would certainly be idolatry. And people can bow before idols of wood and stone. You can bow before a Muhammad. You can bow before a Buddha. And those of the Christian faith would understand that they are deceived. They are misled. But where we are not always as sharp is when it comes to our own idols of our own culture. And we tend not to bow before gods of wood and stone, but we definitely tend to bow before other gods that are quite prevalent and quite present. We bow before gods of money. We bow before gods of sex. We bow before gods of power. And so what form can it take? It might be a housewife who is just simply so obsessed with her image in the community that she absolutely needs the approval of those around her. And so she spends her life not consumed with faith in Jesus Christ and how to honor Him, but simply how to appear before others. And so getting her kids to the right places, in the right programs, driving the right car, having the right husband, being in the right neighborhood, progressing at the right time, that might be what very well drives her. And that might be those of those who are deceived. Or it might be Like some of you in this room might be those of your age who share in your business practices. It might be that what they really long for is an affirmation in their lives that comes through a sense of power and being in control. And that's what they really seek and desire. They want to be respected. And they need that sense of authority. And that's what just absolutely controls them. But that can also be a form of this satanic deception. 
Or it might be for some of you younger guys who are just trying to make your name and to make your place. You might be tempted to ethically shade things. It might be an attempt to make yourself look better. It might be uh, a temptation to make someone else look worse so you can get the head up for them uh, on them. It can come in multiple forms and ways, but it's something that grips and controls you and begins to dictate your life. And that is the great danger of all of this, is that it can be so subtle. And so we need to not just sensationalize what it means to be joined to Satan and his powers. We need to look at it honestly and ask ourselves, how are we susceptible? How could we be deceived? How could we be misled? Because the bottom line is, if you remember back to the very early letters to the churches, they were all being tempted. They were all being led astray. They were all being, uh, that Satan was wanting to deceive each of them. And it came in multiple fashions and ways. And none of us, no one in this room is immune to it. And so we all need to pay very close attention to our own hearts and to our own culture and understand these things. Um, And then, just one question I have for you. Because I can't promise that in the future it will be easier. But you see with the majority of the numbers who are deceived, we have to ask ourselves a very searching question. Is that will we have the muster to stand against multitudes who are deceived? There's a very interesting study done. Uh, it was conducted at, uh, at Yale University, I believe. And they were testing human responses to authority. And so what they did is they had just normal, average people come in. And, uh, and they had them sitting behind a one-way glass, and they had them with a little voltmeter. And there was a doctor standing there in a clinical white coat, and there was an actor on the other side of the one-way, the one-way mirror. And he was sitting in a chair hooked up to electrodes. And the doctor uh, sat down and explained to the person, said, when I tell you to turn the voltmeter, I'd like you to turn the voltmeter, and we will gradually ratchet this thing up. And so the person uh, would sit there, and the doctor would say, all right, turn the voltmeter, so they would start it. And the actor was doing a fine job, you know, starting to convulse. And the doctor would gradually increase the voltage to where the actor would actually fake uh, being electrocuted and dying. And do you know that the percentage of those who actually electrocuted and killed that actor, and they actually thought they were doing it, was extraordinarily high, something like 80 or 90 percent, because they were just acting on orders. They were acting on the authority of this person. And that is what is so scary for us because that's the nature of being a fallen human being is that we're willing to submit to authority. We're willing to, to submit to what we think is the majority and what is okay. And we have to be so careful because can we stand on our own two feet when it comes to our faith even when the multitudes are allied against us? Martin Luther has this wonderful moment in his life in 1522. And that spring, things had come to a head for him as he had started his, ref, his reforming work in the, inside the, the Catholic Church. And Luther was crying out, had written several books, one of them being the Babylonian Captivity, which had just been gas on the flame. And so Charles, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, comes out after Luther, and he calls a diet, a meeting, where Luther would be put on trial at Worms. And so Luther shows up. He shows up on the 16th of April, and he's brought before the tribunal on the 17th. And he's asked this simple question. Martin, are these your books? 
And he gives a very simple answer. He says, yes, and I have others. And they don't want to discuss his theological positions. They simply say, do you renounce them? And he says, let me think about it. (laughs) Luther said that these things are about God and faith and conscience. Let me think about it. So Luther goes back to his chamber. It's said that he prays for very many hours. And then he's called back to the diet the next day to give his final answer. And Luther there stands in front of the most powerful men in the world at that time. These were the men who had control of all the armies of the Western world. They had control of all the armies. They had all the money. And here he stands before them and has a chance to stay in good stead with them. He could simply make peace by saying, yep, I renounce it. He probably could have gone back to uh, to Wittenberg. Nobody would have ever paid him attention. He could have taught and had a peaceable life. But Luther gives a very eloquent speech where he ends that speech and says, Here I stand. I can do no other. It's a dramatic moment. If you ever would like to read a great book, Roland Dayton, Here I Stand. Just fascinating life. A big life of a man faithful to his convictions who really believed the Word of God and held true to it and was willing to stand against the multitudes. And so the question comes to us. If the multitudes were ever to stand against you, could you stand alone? Are you that certain? Are you that secure in your faith in Christ? And so after Satan deceives the multitudes, we'll see that Satan will actually lay siege on the city of God in verse 9. It's kind of interesting. It says they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But it says surrounded the camp of God's people. This is the terminology for camp of, that was used in Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. Of course, what we've seen going through Revelation is that the camp has now been transformed after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the camp of God's people is no longer simply the Israelites. That the camp of God's people is Jew and Gentile alike. People of all different kinds that Jesus Christ has purchased with His blood. As Revelation 5 says, men from every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. That this is the camp of God's people. And that Satan comes to lay siege on this city. Now, we shouldn't just think of one city where all God's people are holed up. That's not quite the picture. But throughout all the nations, there is a spiritual warfare going on here where Satan is laying siege against God's people in every area of life, in their moral lives, in their theological lives, in their personal lives, in every area of life, Satan is laying siege, besieging it, saying that you are deceived for trusting in Jesus Christ and submitting to Him. But then we find that the siege ends, and it ends very abruptly. It's an interesting play on words that John uses in his original language, But he says that, literally, it says that they went up and the fire went down. (laughs) It's just that quick that God defends His holy city. The people who He loves. The people who He has placed His name on. They come up to lay siege and God devours them. He completely destroys them. And that's what we see in verse 10, that Satan and his armies are destroyed by God. But the fire came down from heaven. So know that God is ultimately your defender that He is your shield, and He is the one who will vindicate you. And for the meantime, as we talked about, that profound theological question, 
God, if you're reigning, then why is the world the way that it is? The encouragement I can give you is to point you to the book of Psalms. Because you can't read and understand the book of Psalms without that question. David, in so many of his writings, was dealing with this very issue. God, why are the wicked having it so good and why am I having it so bad? (laughs) I'm the one who's faithfully serving you and believing in you, and yet it's looking like they're reigning and ruling. And he struggles with this. And the only resolution is to have faith in a future justice where God will vindicate himself and he will vindicate you. And that the assurance of that for you, the down payment of it, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because you want to talk about the one truly righteous man who things did not go his way. Then you're talking about Jesus Christ when he had to go to Calvary, where he died on the cross at Golgotha. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just out of Psalm 22. That he knew what injustice was. But He did that on our behalf in order that God would not forsake us on that last day. And so know that the fire comes down out of heaven to deliver us. God vindicates Himself and He vindicates His people. And then it's interesting to note that the devil was thrown into the lake of fire, that the devil is judged. You find the scene recapitulating from chapter 19 where the beast and the prophet are judged. But the devil was thrown... If you look at this word throw throughout the book of Revelation, it's kind of funny because John's having a nice little play on words. And yes, he liked to do things like this. But in chapter 2, you find that the devil was throwing the Christians into prison, that he was tormenting them. And then in a bit of mockery and a bit of satire here with a nice savvy flair, you see who's doing the throwing now. It's no longer the devil. But though he was active even while he was in prison and though he was emancipated And work to deceive the nations. That Jesus comes and pours out his wrath on him. And Jesus begins doing the throwing. And this word for throwing is a very violent one. It's the same one that's used in our gospel accounts where Jesus throws out the demons. And he hurls them. Perhaps would be a better translation. But Satan is hurled. He's violently dealt with. Jesus Christ manhandles him. And that's the one great promise that we have. That the opponent that we can never defeat has been defeated for us. We have a great defender. And so that is intended to comfort us. We're given a vision of this destruction because this great enemy of ours who has the power to deceive us ultimately will be destroyed. And so our solace and comfort for now is to hold to Jesus Christ fast in faith, believing that He is the resurrected and reigning King and that He will one day return to make that very publicly known to all everywhere. And so that leads us into our second section in verses 11 through 15. What we find here is that if we are to persevere in our faith, we need a vision of the final judgment and our deliverance. That if we want to continue on, not only do we need to see the destruction of Satan, but we need a vision of the final judgment and also of our final deliverance. We need to see that clearly. So if you look in verse 11, what we have here is the return of Jesus Christ. It reads, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. This great white throne we have seen before. Previously in the book of Revelation in chapter 4, we found that John saw a throne 
And that from this throne there were announced judgments. That judgments were being poured out. But if you remember that those judgments were actually in history. They were in real time. That God was pouring out judgments in order to bring about repentance. That God was judging the wicked in order to be gracious to them. That they would recognize the wrong and evil of their ways. He was being kind and merciful actually by being severe. He was promoting repentance. But that changes very significantly here. Because the time for God's grace and mercy has now run out. That the great white throne is no longer giving severe mercies. But now he's only speaking severe words of judgment. That the great white throne is now present to bring a final judgment, to bring men to account for their deeds. And so we have, after verse 11, as we get into verses 12 and 13, a general resurrection of the dead. There is some debate about these verses, and they're quite difficult, but we'll handle them looking at verses 12 and 13 first, and then looking back in 12 through 15. But it reads, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. But we see that John saw the dead. That every person who had ever lived over the course of time was now resurrected. Standing here before this great white throne. It's a bit hard to get our minds around it. But everyone whom you have ever known, everyone in this room, everyone who has ever lived outside of our own lifespan, every human being will be standing there before the great white judgment throne of God. And it will be very evident and plain who reigns and rules over all of history and who is the God and Lord and who were the deceivers. There will be no one disputing or debating the facts on that day. But John saw the dead. Everyone had been raised physically. And then it says, it's an interesting note, that he says, great and small. I believe this is helpful for us. Because John wanted to point out that all men will be judged according to the same standard. That there was no one too important for this judgment. And there was no one too insignificant for this judgment. That all human beings are accountable and responsible to this God who reigns and rules. And that we all must settle up accounts with Him. There's no one too great and no one too small. Oftentimes we get into modes of operating in life where it's very easy to begin to live above the law. We think the rules don't quite apply to us. Sometimes it's just quite convenient. It happens in easy ways. The other day I forgot to sign up for a meeting at work. And, um, and so I, I sent a nice email explaining my situation, knowing that this uh, assistant who works, works for us was, you know, she, I knew that I could abuse my authority on this one. <laughs> I knew that I could shuffle my way into this meeting because I couldn't make the other one. And I was acting like I was above the law. I was really being a jerk. How easy it is for us to do that in this life. That's a trivial example. But it's very easy and it's very common. 
And some think that God will just literally wink at their sins and that He'll overlook it. Surely I'm His favored person. He's not going to take it too seriously. After all, it's not that important. We tell ourselves all kinds of rationalizations. But there's no abuse of power when it comes to the day of judgment. He's not going to wink at anything. We're all going to be physically raised and we're all going to be held to a standard. We're going to be judged there. Great and small, everyone alike. And so I simply ask you, what is going to be your boast on that day? And if you want to know what your boast is going to be, just ask yourself simply, what is my boast about today? What is the thing that I boast in? Is it your power? Is it your money? Is it your family? Is it your identity? Is it your reputation? Your boast today will be what you boast in on that last and final day. Please don't be deceived and think that it will change. What you're proud about today will be what you're proud about then. It will be what you tried to recommend yourself to God with. And so boast only in the Lord Jesus Christ and cast yourself upon Him alone because He's your only hope in that day of the great and final judgment. And so then finally, in verses 12 through 15, we're going to look at this issue of the judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous. There's a complicated issue here, and you, be, you probably have already noticed it, and I'm thankful to Sanders for giving me this passage. He avoided one for himself. Um, <laughs> gave it to his underling. But, um, but you notice that there are several books mentioned here in the judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous. First, it says this. It says, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And you also see those books uh, earlier in verse 12. It says, the books were opened. And it says in verse 12, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And so what we have here is a set of books that had recorded the deeds of the righteous and the unrighteous, according to which men were judged. And then we have another book, a book of life that had names recorded in it. And so I'd simply like to lay out for you uh, Revelation's understanding of this book of life. And you've seen these verses, but please turn back to Revelation 13.8, 17.8, and then we're going to look at 21.27. But this book of life, 13.8, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Who are those that worship the beast? Who are those who have been deceived by the false prophet? Who are those who have followed Satan? Those whose names were not written in the book of life. Revelation 17, 8. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. Who are those who will be astonished? Who are those who will be identified with the beast? Those whose names are not written in the book of life. Turn to chapter 21, verse 27 talking about the new heavens and new earth, the new celestial city where God dwells with His people, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does, not, who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is a positive statement. 
about who will enter the heavenly city. The other two were negative. But those who will enter the heavenly city are those whose names have been written in the book of life. And gentlemen, this takes us into a great mystery of God. One that I won't be able to tidy up for you this morning. And one that many of you have been dealing with for years. But simply, it's plain that if we want to deal with Scripture upon face value and not attempt to dictate to God who He is, but rather Him have Him lord over us and reveal Himself to us, that God has a book in which He has written names, in which He has chosen people for Himself. And I'd like you to look in Revelation 5 as what is said about this matter of the death of Jesus Christ, because this book is the book of the Lamb, and all whose names have been written in that book have been washed in His blood. And that is the basis of the alleviation of our judgment on this day. That God has alleviated our judgment because we have been washed in the righteous blood of the Lamb. Our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life and He died in our place. But I want to give you some great encouragement today about the death of Jesus. Because when Jesus dies, there's something definite about it for everyone who calls upon His name. And see what is said here in verses 9 and 10. Says you, uh, and they sang a new song. Listen to this song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. But you see what Jesus Christ does from the cross. He purchases a people. This is a transaction that has occurred. This doesn't make salvation hypothetical. It doesn't just make it possible. It means that a certain people were bought. That they were purchased when Jesus Christ died. What does this mean for you and for me? It means that nothing is more secure about my salvation. Because God in eternity past wrote my name in His book of life and then in the history of the world He had Jesus Christ definitively die for my sins. He didn't leave it up to me. He didn't leave it to my decision. He didn't leave it to my will because He knows that I would have messed the thing up. That I couldn't do anything about it. That I didn't have the will and desire to turn and believe and to trust in Him. But that Jesus Christ definitively saved me that day. That He purchased me. And He purchased people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That He did it. He created a people for Himself all throughout the world. And do you notice what He did? It says He made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. That this work of Jesus Christ is effectual. It's powerful. And the different understandings of the death of Jesus. Some people desire, desire to limit its power in order to say that Jesus died for everyone. And that is an evangelical position, which we can respect and can understand. But simply don't think that is what Scripture is urging us to see. Because you see that everyone limits the death of Jesus in some way. We can limit its extent, or we can limit its power. And I'd much rather limit, it, limit, it, limit its extent 
Because it's powerful, it's definitive, it works, it's effectual, it actually accomplishes the salvation that it says it does. It doesn't just make it hypothetical. It doesn't just make it a possibility. Because it says that He made us a kingdom of priests and kings. That is what He's done on our behalf. And some people find this doctrine so mean-spirited. And I know many people who hold it are mean-spirited. I used to be one myself. But then I saw that what this doctrine was really all about was comforting me in the trials and circumstances of my life. That God had effectively redeemed me. And that my claim and boast in this life was in the blood of Jesus Christ. That my name was written in His book, in His mysterious eternal counsels. He chose me for some reason. I still don't get it. Because I know my sins. And He poured out His love on me. And He bought me. And that's the most personally comforting thing that I can own in this life. That's the Jesus I know too, Tim Russell. That's the great comfort of the soul that we can have. So know that the atonement is definite in the book of life. And then we need to deal with this issue of the other books. And very quickly, it very explicitly says that the dead are judged according to what they had done. Now, you can also find complementary scriptures that we won't have time to turn to. Matthew 25, 2 Corinthians 6. But it's very clear that the works of those who are in league with Satan will condemn them. Now, their names were not written in the book of life, as you saw in Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. And I can't try to explain that to you. Their names were not written in the book of life, but then their works condemned them. So here you have the mystery of God's election and his sovereignty and also of human responsibility. I can give you Charles Spurgeon's answer. He was once asked, Dr. Spurgeon, how do you reconcile human responsibility and divine sovereignty? And he simply responded, I have no need to reconcile friends. Because what Charles Spurgeon very clearly understood is that he wasn't going to be able to dictate to God who he was. All he could simply do was submit to what Scripture revealed. And that humans are 100% responsible to repent and believe. And God is 100% responsible and has a book of life. And therein is a mystery. It's a bit like a light. We understand that it's a beam and it's a wave, and science cannot understand it. They cannot explain it, how something can be a beam and a wave. It doesn't make sense. And gentlemen, we're dealing with a divine mystery here. And I just encourage you to enjoy and delight in it and to find pastoral comfort in it that God has definitively bought you, that He is yours. But know that the dead will be judged according to their works. The unrighteous will prove themselves to be unrighteous by their works. But then also the righteous will be judged according to their works as well. Now, this is a delicate issue, and we have to handle it carefully. And I put here for you on your outline, the works of those in Christ do not save, but demonstrate the faith of those made righteous by Christ. Now, let's turn to Ephesians 2.10 very quickly. After the amazing statement that Paul gives us, about salvation being by grace through faith. We find Paul saying this. He says, Not by works that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we don't just coast. That God has created beforehand good works for us to do. And when we are in Christ, 
We will fulfill those works. And on the final day of judgment, the day of reckoning, where he judges the unrighteous, that he will judge the works of those righteous in Christ as well. But it's not the basis of our salvation. The basis of our salvation is the blood of Christ. But our works will reveal that we have had true faith. That's what our works will be doing that day. They will be testifying to the fact that we have truly believed. Because if we truly believe, we will fulfill these works that He set apart for us from eternity past. We will begin walking in obedience to Him. We will love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all of our mind. And we will love our neighbor as ourselves. And we'll begin seeing those flow out in all areas of our lives. So again, salvation is by faith, but faith is revealed by the works it produces. Our deeds represent the reality of our confession. And that is something that we need to be so presently aware of in a culture where the gospel is very much known and very little believed. Especially in our churches, where we're virtually indistinguishable from the culture around us. Where divorce rates, parenting techniques, all kinds of issues, that they're virtually the same. And that we need to remember that God has called us to be a unique people. And that if we've been washed in the righteous blood of the Lamb, that we will follow Him in obedience. He works that out through His Spirit impelling us within. And so then know that you'll be judged on your works that final day. But it's the works of Jesus Christ being worked out through you. And know that your deeds represent the reality of the confession of your faith. And so we have ultimately, ultimate certainty, ultimate security. And that's why John gives us this vision. This vision of a future reality that's so certain that we're just waiting on it. Because he wants to affirm you in your present, in all of your struggles that you deal with. In this time between the times where we have a reigning Lord, but there's also a Satan who's still active. But yet there will one day it will be destroyed and it will be wiped out. And I wish I could go into further detail, but that's for next week. Where you have a new heavens and a new earth and God recreates all the sad things. He comes and consummates it in glory. And so we'll have to stop there, but let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for the vision of the destruction of all evil. In our lives, we know that we need to see clearly that you have destroyed the powers around us, that our hearts are weak and our faith is frail, and that we are so prone to be deceived, that we desire to trust in the strong horses and the idols of this world. But would you keep us from being deceived? And by faith, might we persevere Might we trust and might we lean hard upon Jesus Christ, understanding that He is the reigning Lord and Messiah over all the earth. Would we know that He has definitively bought us, that our names are in the book of life and we've been washed in His righteous blood, and that our works will prove true our faith, that You have done this work. God, would we receive all the comfort of these future visions? Would they be powerful in our lives? We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.